Rich, thanks for, for joining us today. Um, what's the weather like out there? It's not too bad. It's been um, raining on and off, and uh, but it's it's quite it's mild. It's okay. Mm, we're sharing the weather then. Oh well, we're very on right now with our rain. It is pouring outside. Um, very windy, and I can't smoke a cigarette because of it. <laughs> it's very annoying, Rich. Yeah, he's been so bored he took up smoking. Also, I, I did just come in from the rain, not to do any housework or anything, but because our Halloween decorations are blowing all over the driveway right now. Are you a big decorator, Rich? Um, no. Look at that plain <laughs> white wall behind him. What do you think? This, this is like, this is my little bubble. My <laughs> hint of magnolia, calm space, and everything's good. Actually, Randy, can you turn back on your computer? I'm getting very yeah. similar, uh, I mean, your, your video. I'm getting very similar vibes here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great minds. Well, I know, because you've never met a wall that you didn't want to cover up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rich, um, as a 20-year-old, I used to get my tax return, and I would take it to a frame shop, and I would pay uh, usually around $500, it was my gift to myself, and I would frame, like... I don't know, a poster I got at Comic-Con or something. And usually nothing excited. That's the kind of a uh, horror enthusiast you're talking to today, which is why I had to reach out to you. Now, um, I, I just want to give everybody listening a brief uh, history on why we're talking to Rich Lawton right now. Um, so we run a film festival called the Unnamed Footage Fest. It's found footage only. And that, that came out of uh, a deep need I felt God, about 10 years ago now, to force my friends to come over and teach them that found footage horror was a good idea and it was great and they just weren't getting it. My uh, strategy here was to project it on a wall, play it really loudly and force people to pay attention. I do feel like you've fallen out of your professorial days just a bit. I, I totally have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think people would walk away and they'd be like, hey, you know what? If you take these movies kind of seriously but understand what they are, they're great. And I would have like a handful of movies I would always show people, like Noroi the Curse or, um, I don't know, Into the... There's a, there's a ton of found footage movies. My, my deep cut uh, I'm Cooler Than You film was always Ghost Watch, though. Now, here in America, people were like, what the fuck are you showing us? And... You know, very uh, few people know of Ghostwatch over here. Yeah, and they say that in the UK as well, occasionally. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that's shocking to me. Um, yeah. But yeah. like out here, people are just like, one, you know, I, it really taught me about how to set up a film. Because if you don't set up Ghostwatch and you show the DVD that I purchased, I believe you can still find it if you look online. Um, it's not, it doesn't play like a traditional narrative because, you know, it's a real life WNUF Halloween special, essentially. And I know we've talked about it a lot on here. I don't think I need to reset it, but uh, it doesn't play to a traditional arc. It's kind of more like uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail. Like there's like an off time climax. And when we get there, there's like no, we never get to really close the door on it. It kind of ends at the peak. And the journey is really what it's all about. So, you know, out here in America, there's not a lot. Nobody ever screens it on Halloween. We're still the only people I know that forced people to watch it. And it's kind of cool because we get to tell the story. And then one day, um, I think we were programming for our uh, 
2019 Film Fest. And I've always had it in the back of my head, like, the way we got to show Ghostwatch is if we could find a recording, somebody in the UK who just taped it offline, that would be the best way. You'd kind of get a slice of life of a different culture, and you'd also get to see it in the right runtime. I feel like the commercials would be important here. And so, you know, every now and then I jump on eBay and I look around and I found this book and it was called Ghostwatch Behind the Curtains. And I'm like, holy shit, somebody wrote a, a book about the movie. So I just, I bought it. I didn't even read what it was or anything. I just blindly purchased it. It showed up uh, and then I didn't touch it like I do with every book. About two months ago, uh, one of uh, our podcast buddies over at um, Scary Thoughts, he, he made some posts about like the way you start reading is you just stop watching Netflix as much as you do and start low. So I made a goal, 20 books a year. That was my first one that I went after. And uh, I was shocked to notice that it was, I didn't even read the full title. It was Ghostwatch Behind the Curtains, the transcript. And I was like, wait, what the hell is this? Was there a play? And it's like, no, no, no. This is a transcript of the documentary, which then I had to try and find the documentary, which I couldn't. But I finished the book, which is uh, basically the documentary. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to this dude because the author of that book was also the director of the documentary, which is Rich Lawden. Rich, what the hell? <laughs> How did you end up making a transcript to a documentary you made? Um, it was twofold. We, we started getting uh, emails coming in from students and the hard of hearing. And there was no subtitle track on the documentary. So I felt really bad that anybody who wanted access to it, the documentary also sold out very quickly on DVD. Um, so I, I just, I think it started as a subtitle track, but they're quite difficult. They're quite, you have to have the right software and stuff like that. And I'm a, a complete rank amateur at it. So I just did my best to, um, to tra transcribe the whole thing and put it out as cheap as possible. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> well, how, okay. So my second question is just, where's the documentary? I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. Um, so we had a limited run on DVD and I think it sold out in, I think officially it sold out in 2018. That was the last copy that went on eBay, certainly. Um, and then, well, we, we finished the film in 2012 for the 20th anniversary. We wrapped and it was basically picture locked. I think there was maybe one or two very, very minor changes before we released it on DVD in 2013 the 21st anniversary ostensibly and um yeah it's uh, it was difficult to get it out it was we were in a kind of mid ground in terms of i don't quite think that i mean it was certainly you know miles before the pandemic and things like that so um streaming and what have you was gathering ahead of steam but it, it i think it would probably be a bit more easier now to get it onto a platform um, but we never quite found the right platform for it um, until the BBC. We, we started talking to the BBC. They had their own download <clears throat> um, uh, service called BBC Store, and it, uh, it it basically premiered on that. But unfortunately, BBC Store didn't uh, last very long. So 
in this huge span of time, like the documentary project started in 2007, late 2007. We finished the film in 2012. We released it in 2013. It sold out in 2018. Next year is the 30th anniversary of the transmission of Ghostwatch. The transmission of Ghostwatch, because there hasn't been another one in the year. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, we are now doing everything that we possibly can to get it out for next year. Um, I... I really wanted to um, headline a kind of anniversary celebration of it. I think people have been waiting long enough. So in some form or another, um, I think that the odds are that it, next year is the, the year that we're going to bring it back. Now, in the transcript, I believe, uh, or in the documentary, early on, um, I believe you're talking to Leslie Manning, and you're at a uh, theater where you're about to show the film and have a discussion. And you kind of describe yourself not as like a film critic, but kind of like as somebody who was changed by the viewing of the film when you were younger. And I couldn't have felt more of like a, I don't know, you felt like a kindred soul. Because we've been doing this podcast for about five years now, and we talk to filmmakers, and I always come in, I'm like, dude, I'm not a critic. I don't think film is rated by like, you know, perfect to terrible. And really, I think people need to learn that something they enjoy is just as valuable as something that is like technically well-made. And I feel like Ghostwatch falls in there. And I'm, I'm super curious to hear about your experience with the film that brought you to eventually making a documentary about it. Well, I mean, I, I saw it when I was seven years old. Um, I've always been a film fan, even from a very young age. And so I think 92, 93, I was the kind of kid that was going through a copy of Alien 3 to see which shots had Sigourney Weaver's genuinely shorn hair or if she was wearing a skull cap um, with stubble in it. Um, and I, I just loved doing that kind of thing. And I, my, my all-time favorite film is a, a, a toss-up between uh, the, the first Tim Burton Batman and uh, Ghostbusters uh, with Ghostbusters probably Hell yeah. getting it. <laughs> And my metric, funnily enough, is, isn't any of those films. I, it, it, very similar to what you were saying. It's actually inner space. If, if a film comes out, um, a new film that uh, people are raving about, I always say, but I'd rather watch inner space because that's <laughs> a fairly go-to one for me. And again, you know, not a, a gigantic hit, but it just, it just makes me very happy to watch it. Um, so I was interested in the, the paranormal and the supernatural. I'm no expert. I'm just an enthusiast. And it's that kind of interesting time in a kid's life when they're about seven years old that they start questioning, uh, in pretentious terms, the sort of metatextual relationships of existence. You know, you, you look around and you take things for granted, and then all of a sudden you start asking questions. It's like, okay, are there ghosts? But what is a ghost? Is, is it something tangible? Is it something psychological? And you start asking these questions implicitly. And... Um, I remember at the time trying to kind of learn more about this sort of stuff and not getting very far. It's not a lot of it. Pre-internet, of course, so it's very difficult to find other opinions about things like that. But um, we watched a lot of TV um, in our house, and I remember seeing the trailer for Ghostwatch. Um, Interesting that you talk about commercials as well because there were no commercials. BBC has no commercials. It's commercial free. So in those days, you had BBC One, BBC Two, um, and then Central, which now is ITV, independent television. 
and then Channel 4. So you had four channels. That was it. I think sat- Sky TV satellite cable was just coming in. But you basically had those four to choose now, from. Now, Rich, let me, let me cut you off real quick. So what what's the differentiation between all the different BBC channels? Because I, I'm i a bit <laughs> of a – I'm a subscriber to BritBox. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I listened to Ricky Gervais' XM show for a long time. I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, and I know that, you know, there was a lot of inside jokes between like what's airing on the different BBC channels. And it seems like BBC four was more of the, the comedy focus stuff. So what's more of the differentiation between the channels? Right. BBC one is the voice of the nation. Um, and now we say Twitter is the voice of the world arguing with itself. <laughs> um, so BBC one is, it, it used to be very, RP, as we say in the UK, is a received pronunciation. So if you find the continuity announcement that preceded Ghostwatch, um, uh, that was spoken by a guy called Mark Waddington, I think, off the top of my head. And he's got this beautiful, um, very, very staid, proper way of speaking. So now on BBC One, Screen One presents, you know, it's, it's very <laughs> assured and you can trust us because what we're, what we're saying is trustworthy. That's key to Ghostwatch. In, in fact, Steve Volk, who wrote Ghostwatch, um, said that if it had been made by any... I mean, we call BBC Auntie in the UK, and Ghostwatch coming from Auntie, a trusted Auntie, as opposed to a dubious uncle of another channel, <laughs> it is what gave it a lot of credence and, and made it that much more potent. But um, <clears throat> BBC One, that's where you'd get, in those days, sports, um, uh, news reporting, serious drama, things like Screen One. Screen One was the drama strand that Ghostwatch was made under. And then BBC Two was as respected, really, but in a different – it was a bit alternative. So you would have things – they would have themed evenings on BBC Two. So you would have um, Star Trek Night which would be a couple of episodes, maybe an episode, a selected episode of Star Trek, um, a film to close, and then a couple of documentaries peppered throughout, interviewing fans, people who made the show, and that kind of thing. So it was just a bit lighter. And then um, you would have ITV or Central, and they had lots of different, because that was regional. In fact, even BBC was regional, but it was more or less the same thing. But there was a, the, the program changes varied more so for ITV. If, if you were up north, for instance, you might have a completely different show on uh, compared to down south. But that would be your more sort of game shows. Um, I think in the US it's Family Feud, but it's we have yeah. Family <laughs> Fortunes. You know, it's that, it's that kind of thing. And then Channel 4, well, Channel 4 do the alternative Christmas Day message. So BBC, you have a, a Christmas message from the Queen on Christmas Day, and she will give her best wishes to everybody. And then on channel four, it will be somebody else. Will, who knows? You know, somebody <laughs> that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's absolutely. And, and also we had BBC three and BBC four, BBC three, um, and four more, uh, contemporary BBC three. I don't think is actually airing anymore it's internet only but there's been a resurgence because there's been some interesting programming on it that's like the the youth channel it's not a a kids tv channel but it's programming geared towards kind of late teens uh late 20s that kind of thing Um, the mtv say again 
the MTV of Britain? BBC MTV, more or less, yes, there with um, um, Sir Beavis and Lord Butter. <laughs> um, and then BBC Four is, uh, well, incredibly dry, really. I mean, it's it's brilliant, but it's it's absolutely, absolutely on the line, absolutely, um, you know, locomotive documentaries or architecture documentaries and things like that. But I think in all fairness, the BBC really champions and has always done very well with documentary, um, mm. uh, sort of encapsulating reality and, and presenting it. And there's been some really quite wonderful uh, programs made over the years, which is, I'm sure, what blindsided a lot of people uh, when Ghostwatch had. Now, there are no commercials? I'm shocked that you said that. So, okay, so... Because uh, you're an American and we're, it's shoved down our throat. I know, every everything... Passing <laughs> opportunity. Everything's monetized over here. Um, so the DVD that was released, that is the full presentation? Yeah, uh, yeah, with the exception of um, the, the opening continuity announcement, which was just the BBC logo with um, Mark Waddington, as I recall, uh, introducing the program that went through presentation, which is a department of the BBC that are very, very strict on how a program is introduced and it has to be very transparent and open and what have you. Um, and then at the end of it, there was another uh, continuity announcement for the next program, but you could hear a kind of tremor in the guy's voice. And we've oh. been trying to find that for years. And there's only a tiny little clip of it in existence that we're aware. Of. In fact, it's proving almost impossible to find it, even through official channels at the moment, sadly. But um, it was introducing the next program. And the, the legend is that the guy said, um, well, uh, you know, if you enjoy that, then uh, next it's match of the day, which is a, <laughs> a soccer program, football program. Um, and then later on in the evening, I didn't even know until a, a, a fellow researcher, a lovely guy who had a blog called um, The History. It's like VHS with history in the middle of it. Um, and he had a, a huge uh, sway of these uh, cassette tapes. He used to record everything on the television all the time. And he had a ghost watch tape. And I, um, I emailed him and I said, I, I see on your blog you've got a ghost watch tape. He said, I haven't got to it yet. It's going to take me so many years to get through all these tapes and he reviewed one every day until he ran out and then i got a an email uh, subsequently saying i found some stuff i think you might find it interesting and oh. there was a third continuity announcement with poor mark saying um it was just a drama everybody can calm down you know with a <laughs> photograph of you know because the, the the number of calls coming through on the night has it's been misreported because it's difficult to find that stuff but at, at the peak five minutes of phone activity, a million people were trying to reach the BBC um, alone, not counting the, the police station, uh, the low because it was set in a real location. Northolt exists in uh, West London, I think. Um, so they were getting calls. The radio stations were getting calls. And as as they say, the, the BBC switchboard crashes after about six phone calls. So they, <laughs> they couldn't really, you know, it's literally just like a couple of wires and stuff like that. It was in those days. Um, so yeah. Now I, you know, in your book, they mentioned that everybody was a little worried because you do have a phone number on screen in ghost watch that pops up and they, they encourage people to call in. And uh, Leslie was saying that they actually had like what, 30 psychics in a phone bay. Like, yeah, I'm trying to find out a bit more about this. If there was a, a 
I think there were some advisors to Ghostwatch. Um, Steve, the writer, was very keen on making it as authentic as possible. And I think there were some advisors from a research society who were who volunteered or were asked, some, something along those lines, to take calls as they came in. Um, and, and it's it's a very uh, new recollection of mine because I, I've spent you know, over 10 years researching document, the, the ghost watching documentary form, one form or another. Um, I actually remembered very recently asking my parents, as it was just the three of us who, who watched it on the night, do you want to phone up and leave a ghost story? Do you have one? I was really interested. I said, well, no, let somebody else do it. Because <laughs> um, there are no such things as ghosts, you idiot. Um, and um, I, I imagine a fair few people were actually trying to get through to leave a ghost story. But the few that snuck through the phone lines, um, I think they, they were able to speak to one or two people. But I haven't been able to track down everybody who was involved, unfortunately. Maybe someday. Yeah, man, it's incredible. Like, I reading your transcript of the documentary, which I can't, I can't get over how funny that is to me. And I can't believe I didn't read the whole damn title. But <laughs> I can. In the book, like... I, you know, oh man, I've actually read some like academic like deconstructions of uh, like Ghostwatch and people like mulling over it. And it's so weird because um, Blair Witch kind of made such an impact and created the whole subgenre of found footage horror that everybody's constantly trying to one up it and figure out who did it first. And, and I don't know if that's even really fair because I don't know if we'd be talking about it, the format without the Blair Witch. But Ghostwatch is, uh, that's a pretty good argument. It came out seven years prior. And what I, what I thought was interesting in, in the book was hearing Leslie trying to deconstruct what makes something feel real. Like trying to can verisimilitude. There's the, the oh word boy. if you're playing the drinking game. Put the dollar in the bucket. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm sorry, Rich. Uh, versimilitude is my favorite word, and I get a lot of uh, flack for saying it around here. Well, one day you'll say it right. I, I know, right? I, or learn to spell it. I <laughs> oh, cannot do that. I, no, no hope out for that. Now, it, it, dude, it's fascinating just hearing her talk about like how it's important that you don't correct everything, how you almost have to treat it. Um, what was Bruce Lee's fighting style? This is a great analogy. If I if I would have thought about it before, um, is it Jeet Kundo or is it Wayne? Well, I don't know. I don't why know. Are you asking? Me? Well, because you know he was he used to preach about learn everything and learn it well, yeah, and then forget it, and then that's how you really embody something. And that's what when I was reading the transcript, Leslie was pretty much saying that she's like, you know, you really have to know the format of like studio film and live television to understand how to manipulate it properly. Absolutely. And uh, another revelation in that book was her learning how fucking angry people get when you do it well. <laughs> now, you watched it when you were seven years old, which I think uh, you've revealed your age because I think we're the same age. And what was your reaction? Were you terrified? Like, I've read about people saying, oh, my microwave started acting up. And they thought, like, the ghost had come through their television. Oh, yeah. There, there were a lot of things. In fact, <clears throat> um, as far as anything happening, the only thing that I, the only time I ever recall anything happening watching a film like that was The Exorcist, which I saw by myself on a day. It, it was on a, a Sky channel. Uh, so you could probably find out the exact day it was. It, it premiered on Sky Premiere. It was the first time it was shown in the UK. And um, uh, the bin fell in the kitchen. 
um, halfway <laughs> through, and I just you know, right right at the beginning. Um, but no, Ghostwatch. It was brilliant watching it the way I did because before it started, my dad was saying, "There's a written by credit." Um, the, the directed by starring oh the, the, I can see a wire there you can't do that camera can't do that and he was trying, <laughs> desperately trying to strip the, like an engine like trying to strip an engine into all of the component pieces why I've absolutely no idea I, I must get it from him whereas my mother and it's so difficult to explain this I she always comes across bad the way I describe it but it was perfect she wasn't as interested in the technical intricacies of the, how it was made. She was somehow able to deduce which parts of Ghostwatch were scripted and which were impromptu. So I always take the opportunity to apologize to her because at some point in Ghostwatch, maybe a third of the way through, a little bit further than that, Sarah Green is on camera and she tells a ghost story. And I remember my mother saying, this bit's real. This is real. And and we were like, Mom, no, the whole thing's <laughs> fake. Like, duh, you know. And she was like, okay, fine. And then 20 years later, I interviewed Sarah Green, and she said, no, it was a real ghost story. I had a scripted one that they said, read this. And I said, well, can I not just tell my own one? So that whole thing was real. Um, so I was this seven-year-old kid caught between two great opposing forces in terms of deconstructing the program. I had the... The, the good fortune to be able to experience it sort of buffered. And I think one of the issues with Ghostwatch is that a lot of people watched it by themselves or they watched it with people who weren't particularly interested in trying to work it out. It was just purely visceral entertainment, and they just sort of sat there like, wow, you know, this thing's amazing. So I had this incredibly fortunate um, opportunity to be able to ask questions and in, and also enjoy it as a piece of narrative fiction as well because – it does have a really, it's an incredibly simplified, streamlined, linear story. I mean, it's just people going into the jaws of death in, in an exploration and they don't know what's waiting for them and then they think they've cracked it and then it comes back to get them. You know, it's like, it's so classic. It's like Alien or, or something like that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, on the night it was... It was unsettling, and I had some questions, and they were answered as best as possible. I slept very soundly that night. And <laughs> then it was about a week or two later, and there was an absolute dearth of any kind of retrospection on it. Nobody was talking about it whatsoever. It wasn't in newspapers. It wasn't in magazines. It wasn't the internet. In those days, if you wanted to ask somebody if something was real, it was um, – landline phone uh pager or carrier pigeon and that was it so when 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 you're left in that kind of insular situation and you 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 don't know who to turn to you start formulating logic in your own mind and unfortunately the logic of a seven-year-old is <laughs> um, reliable so i <clears throat> we had to we did have a tape of it which i can't find at the moment if i can i'll do my best to dig it out for you I didn't even want to touch the tape. And I, I remember sort of tactile aspects of it because we had a big stack of uh, VHS cassettes that we would record stuff on TV as well. And if somebody asked for a tape, of course, the labels would be on the one side, but they all of the cases for the cardboard cases were exactly the same. And I remember going through them, and it was almost like Braille. I would get to the Ghostwatch tape. The Ghostwatch tape didn't have any laminate on it. It was like sandpaper. 
and I would hold, I would go through. No, it's not that one. Not that. Oh, like, and I, I chill like that. And my, my grandmother, who's no longer with us, got so sick and tired of hearing me complain about it that she said, "Just put it on right now." <laughs> I, I nearly, I had a panic attack. I was, no, 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 I, no, no. And she said, "I'm going to tell you how scary this is. Get it on right now." And um, we turned it on, and it was the most amazing thing. It was the first time I'd seen it. Half of what I'd remembered didn't happen. Mm. And I couldn't fathom where I'd conjured it from. I'd, I'd piece things together, maybe through dreams, all sorts of things. And I found myself sort of enraptured by the thing. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really interesting. It's not necess- it is scary and it is powerful and potent, but it's also um, accessible. And also, strangely, works better on a second viewing. But nevertheless, it got to the point where something unsettling did happen. And I remember sort of prodding her, not looking and saying, uh, Nan, this is a bit, and I looked up and she was like, <laughs> like completely gone. And I, that was the moment where I thought, right, I don't have to, this thing doesn't have to be shackled to my anxiety or fear or anything like that. I can, it's, it's just a TV program, but what a TV program. And it, that was, if anything got me on the path to trying to understand Ghostwatch and my reaction to it, it, it was that. Okay, I, I got a, a pretty modern question for you. Deconstruction of film. I don't know if it's always the best thing for a film. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing there, when you have no, like, uh, closure, and you kind of end something like that, and it, it's like an event. I mean, making it a live broadcast makes it even more of a, like, shared experience, and you're just, like, longing to, to talk about it. I think the Blair Witch did that for a lot of people too with the ending where it kind of just leaves you there and you, you have to think about it. And, you know, now with YouTube, we have all these people who make their whole channel about explained videos. And they're like, I'm going to point out every goddamn thing. I'm going to circle every appearance of pipes in this video for you. And I'm going to tell you everything you need to know to finally put like, to put a hat on this and just lock it up in the closet. Like we're done. No more talking. And I fucking hate those videos. And I really think they ruin, like, the they reveal the enigma. They just destroy the conversation. And I'm curious, do you think if you could have had closure like that, do you think you would have made a documentary about the movie? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think there are possibly multiple stages of closure for anything like that. And um, certainly, I recall at the beginning of the internet, um, a guy, a friend of mine, uh, it became my friend subsequently. I like how you said the beginning of the internet, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I guess it was, change. you know, it's like, it's yeah. only the beginning of my uh, understanding of what the internet was capable. I mean, Blair Witch, it, Blair Witch worked, I think, so well because of that website. And I've mentioned this several times, BlairWitch.com was a wicked website. It was really good. I mean, it worked. You know, actually, <laughs> you turned it on and, and there was sound and audio and it didn't crash. I don't remember. And it was interesting. Um, but Stephen Freestone, uh, was a, a fellow fan and he, uh, made the first Ghostwatch website. It was ghostwatch.info. And that's another touchstone for me in as much as I, I, even at school, like a lot of people have written in to say, oh, we all talked about it at school the next day. But I think I was, I was a bit too young, really. I mean, I do remember having a meeting with somebody at the BBC who her face dropped when I said I was seven. Um, when I watched, she was 
your parents let you watch when you I was like, oh my God, am I going to be taken away from my folks in my late <laughs> 20s or so? You know, what's going to happen? Um, but nobody talked about it. And I was desperate. I was desperate to talk about it. I just wanted, I wanted to know that it wasn't just me that found it interesting. And of course, it was in those days very, you know, it was a blog. That was all you could do. You couldn't have video clips, you couldn't have this. Um, so he would do as much as he could, Stephen. He would do a timeline of, the, of everything that happens in the film and say, you know, in his opinion, it got m- more scary or less scary or, you know, this is the oh my God. spot this and spot that. Um, and there were the unparalleled joy of discovering these pipe sightings every once in a while the blog would update and it'd be like, everybody stop what you're doing. Get your copy right now and go to 43 minutes, 22 seconds or something. And and just keep an eye in the crowd. And it was mind blowing that there was still stuff to be discovered about that the film, you know, so many years later, we're still discovering things about it. Things that I, I wouldn't be surprised if the the original production crew have actually forgotten because it was that long ago. You know, the, the edit for ghost watch was, long and involved and linear and not you know very cumbersome it's been described so um and they, they were working to a deadline as well so who knows what could be um lurking in the the background of, of ghost watch but there are people who have um uh, expressed their uh their wishes not to not to even watch ghost watch again on dvd let alone uh tv broadcast I think that the TV broadcast that certainly I've been pushing for for years now, there are there are other aspects to it other than other than just putting it out. I think that it would be a very brave, um, meaningful move on the BBC's part to 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 allow people to to view it in a different context because for whatever reason, um, very very shortly after Ghost Watch aired, it was you know very very quickly buried and um i think it's regrettable because there were a lot of people that were curious about it and um i think it deserved um a, a fairer appraisal i think it's fair to say now when it aired how many people watched it 11.07 million watched I... it on the night which is one of the highest rated single dramas in in uh, certainly british television history it That's because good. of the disparity of channels now because you've got 300 channels 400 channels it's highly unlikely that that will ever be beaten but um you know in terms of viewing figures i mean i i think it was seventh that week really so it was it was a high number but you know, by all means the um you you, you I, I can't equate it with with american tv because in there are so many similarities and so many differences but um uh, you, you know the soap opera, the, the most popular soap opera. You, you would have EastEnders or Coronation Street. They they would pull in, I'd maybe double that. Um, on a, wow, on a, <laughs> it was huge in those days. Huge. Eleven million people watch Ghost Watch. I I when I read that in your book, I was shocked. I almost thought it was like a typo. And <laughs> the, you know, you're right about the context too. I think. You know, man, it's a weird thing to think about because honestly, you could send me a tape or like a link and be like, hey, I digitized it. And you could 
I mean, what would that mean to me? I'm looking for a version of this that appears to come from television. You could take any commercial, maybe just throw it under a noise filter and bookend it and send it to me. And I'd be like, I have it. It's authentic. And and yet I really I think that's important. The way that it's framed narratively, it changes the whole thing. It gives you that feeling of other people were watching this, too. And it's so important. And just to try and encapsulate, 11 million people were watching that at the same time. And you're right when you mentioned, like, hey, at minute 45 and 32 seconds, there's a pipe sighting. When we, we had Leslie on four years ago, maybe. Yeah. And I was, I was like, hey, we, we found pipes all four times. And she's like, dude, there's like 11. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's really like, uh, it's a tradition I haven't lived up to enough, like throwing on Ghostwatch every Halloween. But every time we do, we always have new people over and they always catch a new one. And I'm always shocked. I'm like, no, that can't be right. And then we sit there and look it over. It really is. It's a gift that keeps on giving. H- has it become a tradition in your household? Uh, very much so, yeah. We, um, uh, I wanted to do something for the... Oh, crumbs. I think it was the 18th anniversary of Ghostwatch. Um, and Twitter, I, I I mean, I was focused on, we had the, the blog, the production blog, and then Facebook, which seemed obvious. But then I started to see the, the Twitter bird logo on um, uh, movie posters on buses. Uh, and I, I was like, what the hell's Twitter? Um, and I looked into it. And you could have any username you wanted. Whenever it was that I signed up, you could have anything. And I just said, well, I'll have that ghost watch. And then it very quickly became a kind of, well, what am I going to do with it? And it just <laughs> seemed to be um, a very easy way of getting people together. So I, I always felt it was that sort of en masse um, uh, collaboration um, in the fan base, just the, the enthusiasts, if you like, just, just to get us all together again, because Stephen's, Stephen Freestone's website, very sadly, um, there, there were some things that happened in his family. His son became very ill, as I understand. Um, he, he just had to prioritize, um, rightly so. And so I thought, well, I'll, I hope I'm not treading on his toes here, but I'll, I'll take over that aspect. And that's how we, we came to be friends. Um, but I just thought, we, we can take this the next step now with Twitter. We can just ask people to... To, to, to comment on the, the proceedings. And I don't think that they, I, I called it a tweet cast, but I'm not sure what the official terminology is of now when, when people come together to watch a film uh, simultaneously. Um, but I think we were among the earlier ones to do it. I, I don't recall very many other people doing it. And again, it was a, it was a great evening, really, really um, good hearted and everything went well. And then whenever the, you know, two years later for the 20th anniversary, I've always said it was like my Woodstock. I mean, we, we beat, uh, we were trending on the leaderboard. Pe- people were asking what channel it was on. Uh, so enthusiastic to see it again. If they hadn't seen it before, that was another thing. A lot of people kind of heard about Ghostwatch, but they didn't have a copy of it. Um, so, yes, uh, since then, every year we've played Ghostwatch at exactly the same time that it went out, which is a little bit anarchic in in response to the – it's the closest I'll get to Rick Mail from The Young Ones, if you're familiar with that. But it's um, uh, it's just a little friendly nudge to the beeb that we want to see it. We want to see it in a, in a different light, and, and we just want to celebrate it. Again, it doesn't have to be shackled to 
um, to, to worry or, or upset. You know, it, it's given me so many opportunities um, professionally um, that I, I just feel it would be wonderful to, for it to, to go out again. Yeah. Now, how many people watched on Twitter? Oh, um, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I think it was over a hundred thousand. Oh, damn! Was, uh, over a hundred thousand were engaged. I seem to recall. Okay. Um, I might be wrong on that, but it was it was a big response. It was a really big response, and I was I was really honoured to to be any any part of that. Um, I, I can't take the credit for it really. I, I I just asked people to come, and they did the the hard work. Now, okay, so. About four years ago, when we started our, our film fest, um, part of the reason we started was because nobody's doing a found footage horror exclusively. So we do we show faux documentary and POV cinema, anything that's a non traditional narrative, basically in world camera. And I struggled for a long time because I'm like, why the fuck am I doing it? Like I'm I'm not anybody. Like why should I be the one like holding this up? I feel like somebody could probably do a better job. But then it's like, well, if nobody's going to do it, then I I need to do it. I, did you ever have that kind of feeling when you became like the unofficial ghost watch guy? Or I mean, official by your handle on Twitter. Um, well, apparently so. Did, does it say official? No. <laughs> well, I mean, you have the ghost watch. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also have a lanyard from one of the, the first ever conventions that I, I was asked to go to. It was at Lower Stock, which is the most easterly part of England. And I, um, <laughs> um, the, the travel is always terrible for Ghostwatch for some reason. The first, when I met Steve Volk, who wrote Ghostwatch in Bristol, um, my watch stopped. Somebody burst into tears during clips from stuff. In fact, she was just overwhelmed with emotion. And then the projector froze, like, really, <laughs> like you know, like that. And then I missed the last train back, so I was stranded in, in Bristol um which I, i'd never the place i'd never been to before but i i remember when i went to to lower stuff they did give me a, a lanyard and it just said rich gordon ghost watching i was like really you know it's like ghost watch <laughs> enthusiast i'll go with that um but uh i i, I don't what, sorry what was the, the first part well, it's just question? like i feel like i end up with like an imposter syndrome because yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah. You got to tell people like I'm, i have no official capacity i never went to like of school course. for film i've never made a film Yet I'm kind of put myself in a position to be a like, uh, dare I say, expert on the subject. An authority, yeah, yeah. It's it's curious. I I think yeah, somebody has to do it, and the the, the way you do it is to be fair minded about it. So if somebody says that they think Ghostwatch is terrible and hate people fall for it, it's as a as a fan, it's because you get protective, so it's difficult. But then you have to realize that people. You know, fine. I, I don't care. I care as much <laughs> about their their lack of opinion as you know. Um, the, the the weirdest one, um, the British Film Institute did a big anniversary screening for Ghostwatch, big, and that was packed out on a massive screen. And I cannot fathom why Ghostwatch plays so well in an auditorium in a big cinema. It, it shouldn't. It wasn't designed for it. It's four by three, so it's like it would, it's pillar box basically from this. Um, the sound is great. It's a great cut. It's a great print, you know, in um, film parlance. Um, but what I I was sat there. I I was. They had two rows of seats in the middle, 
and I've got living legends in front of me. Some people couldn't turn up for one reason or another, but I had Sir Michael Parkinson, I had Steve Volt, Leslie Manning. Richard Brooke was there, who's the exec producer of um, Scream 1, who's also passed away subsequently. Um, Ruth, I think, was there. Various people from the cast and crew. And I was sat with Steve Volk's wife, Pat, and so excited. And they actually asked, because I think Craig couldn't turn up. I think Craig was booked and he couldn't turn up. So they asked me if I wanted to take his place in the Q&A, and I said no, because right. I, I, I never read. I'm not close enough to, to do that kind of thing. And also I hadn't prepared anything um, much like now, if you hadn't guessed. Um, <laughs> and um, us either. <laughs> it just, <laughs> no, 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 no. You're much better at this now. Um, and I just remember from the minute it started, people were in hysterics, like laughing at it um, quite rudely in some corners. And I, I'm sat there like with my arms crossed trying to enjoy it. And everybody else is, tittering and stuff and I thought okay right everyone's having a good night and the most fascinating thing happened for me the the closer you got to the end it was like a total dip like that people got quieter and quieter and quieter and I swear by the end of it when Parky's walking around the studio you could hear the air conditioning and there was this like chill in the air because people had invested so little into it they thought that it was so throwaway they were caught up in that um the presentation of it which is completely useless parky in character doesn't want to be you can just tell he's counting his money and he doesn't <laughs> want to be okay right i've got to do ghost watch this week like what's next next week i'll do rail watch with mike and, and whatever and it, there's that wonderful moment it in uh again, about halfway through Ghostwatch, where uh, Suzanne is caught faking it and the program completely shifts because you go from, as an audience member, being actively dismissive and then you realise that there's a family at the centre of this who are absolutely crushed now. They are now on live TV in front of 11 million people having been caught out for one reason or another. You know, you can take that. However, the motivations of Suzanne doing what she does in the film that is open to interpretation. It's, it's more or less um, based on what I think really happens in hauntings, where if there's no apparent evidence, sometimes somebody just sort of knocks on a door or something and say, oh, oh did you hear that? Because they're so no, desperate. No, they don't. It's always <laughs> real. The Travel Channel has 42 shows <laughs> and they're all real. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's the moment where everybody went quiet and I thought that's it. People get it. People get it uh, consciously, unconsciously. They're starting to care. And then it t- goes into a bit of a haunted house roller coaster type thing. And then by the end of it, I think it's, it's key the way you described it. It just, it, it just ends. It, it is a conclusion, but it's no, you, you, you're left completely in the dark as far as what's happened to the characters, what's going to happen next. I think in the original script, um, uh, Dr. Pascoe, played by uh, Gillian Bevan, the parapsychologist in the studio, was supposed to run towards the camera and say, for God's sake, turn off your TVs. It's <laughs> going to come for you next. And then, you know, by that, uh, cut to static. But, uh, you know, near enough. So I, 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 can't, I can't believe in, in many respects that Ghostwatch 
elicits such a palpable reaction, bearing in mind how of its time it is. It's so regimentedly 1992. Yeah. But I think surely the, 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 the longer we go in time, the, the more people take for granted that kind of stuff. And a lot of stuff in Ghostwatch wasn't commonplace at all. It was written in many respects as a, the sort of the, the technical aspects of it, like the infrared cameras, was a reaction to um, uh, in, uh, heat vision stuff being used in coverage of the Gulf War. And oh. which also came about at that time was um, uh, news, like news cues having dramatic music, dramatizing reality, really funneling an opinion towards the viewer rather than letting them make the, their own minds up. Um, and a lot of stuff that's in Ghostwatch wasn't actually commonplace in those days, but it's in some respects kind of served as a pilot, if you will, a test. Um, that other people have drawn upon uh, in making uh, TV sense. Well, Leslie is such, she's like a uh, narrative intellectual. Like she was like a, a moment in your, in your book, she's thinking about, God, we're going to have to cast an actor to play a cameraman. And she's like, why would I do that? And so she went around to the cameraman and was like, Hey, do you want to play yourself in the movie? And that's just one of those things where it's like, if you don't think about that, that could really change it for you. Like imagine if you had a bunch of pretty Hollywood people manning the cameras who had no idea what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. That would become a thing that his dad would have pointed out and been like, that's fucking fake. And that's why Ghostwatch has never been made in America. <laughs> I know. Dude. <laughs> well, okay. First, I have to go back to you in a theater with people laughing at a film. Me and Clark have shown a few movies at film festivals. We've introed them. And when you get out there and you tell people, hey, I put the stamp of approval on this film, and then it starts and he's instantly rolling the heckling. <laughs> and then you sit there and you're like, man, motherfucker. And then, but you know it's coming and it flips. That feeling, I don't know if I can describe it to anyone who's never like, I mean, ev I'm sure, I hope everybody's shown a movie to a friend before. But when it flips, that moment is both like, in part, like, fuck you, I told you so. I get too messant. Excuse me? Engorged. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> That's what I thought you said. No, and 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 part of it is just like, oh, thank God. And I know exactly what you're talking about. What we did that with the fear footage. We've shown in movies that uh, we actually, when you can program that and you know an audience is going to roll, that's the best feeling in the world. But I feel like I got away from 11 million people watching this movie. It has this great reaction. Clearly, even now when we show it to people, you had 100,000 people on Twitter. Yet the BBC doesn't really uh, like to talk about it at all. In fact, I think from your book, they what, were nominated for awards and declined the opportunity. Yeah, that's it. it yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's uh, not entirely 100 percent what happened there, um, even now. But basically, I think um, the, the BAFTA awards um, are very highly, uh, they kind of like the Oscars. Um, oh, the okay. Version. You didn't know that? And no, I didn't know that. I don't have BritBox. <laughs> <laughs> no, Rich, um, I mean, seriously, yesterday I was like, Clark, what are you doing? Because we live together. Uh, long story, whatever. And he was like, oh, I, I'm catching up on Inside Number 9. Yeah. He's oh, not yeah. joking. Yeah, he hates being American, so. <laughs> My great-grandfather was British, so okay. it's there. There's a connection. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, Rich. It, please tell me more about them denying 
any connection yeah, yeah. to this film? Um, so what happens is that um, uh, I think if you're a member of, but you have to pay a premium to be a member of BAFTA, I, I think, and then you are eligible to nominate things for, you know, productions uh, for awards. And um, yeah, Ghostwatch was up for quite a few. I think they, as soon as they, the sort of long lists they're called, if if a, a particular production gets enough nominations, then they are they they move to the next stage of nomination and voting and what have you. Um, yeah, and for one reason or another, Ghostwatch, nothing, nothing. And um, there were almost tailor made categories for ghostwatch to be considered like most original program or something like yeah. that um and it just it didn't happen and i i don't i don't know why i really don't know why because going back to the bbc not having commercials it is a corporation so it depends we have a thing in the uk called the license fee so we basically have tv tax everybody who has a television that's connected to an aerial in the uk has to pay the license fee every year and i think it's I don't know, probably $500 or something like that. Okay. You can opt out, but you, there are very, very strict regulations on how you use your television if you don't pay for the license. And that money goes to the BBC, but it's not the only money that they have available to them because you have – I had a, a vacation in Europe and there was a, a BBC channel that I'd never heard of. It was like – I can't even recall. It was – I can't recall the name of it. It was like BBC's thing or um, and they were just showing repeats of stuff. And then you have stuff that's shown in PBS as well. So there's always these alternate revenue streams. And Ghostwatch was not cheap. I mean, it was the the it was the final episode of I, I can't recall. I think it was series four of Screen One. So it was the last episode. So basically for Screen One, you would have a run of um uh, standalone drama productions that were conventionally shot in those days. I think they shot on 16 mil or super 16. Um, there was always the kind of option for it to get a theatrical run in that sense. I don't think it happened very often, but you know, it, it was just the best way to make a film in those days was to make a film. And um, Ghostwatch had the 90 minute uh, film slot for the end of that series of Scream 1, but it wasn't shot on film. So it had a huge budget, and I think it, not all of that budget was even allocated because Leslie's such a one – she's known as the egoless director in that she – you very rarely see her name in lights on, on a film. It's all, the film always comes first. But um, it was – even though it wasn't made for everything that it, it could have been made for – um, it still cost a lot of money, and that's public money as well, for the most part, that, that went into it. So it's utterly, utterly bemusing to me that the Beeb didn't choose to, you know, not exploit, exploit's the wrong word, but just make use of it. You know, that's what they do. Um, in, the, in those days, it was a video. You'd have a video, you'd have a tie-in book, you'd have a soundtrack. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have a soundtrack for Ghostwatch, but um, the drama serial that, inspired Ghostwatch in, in uh, practical terms was a 1985 uh, series called Edge of Darkness. And that was the that was the sort of springboard from Steve Volk's agent who said he'd been working on things like Gothic and The, the Guardian, I think, and various films like that, macabre ghost stories and spooky, you know, dark stuff. And 
uh, I think his agent just said that they're making a program called Edge of Darkness. Why don't you do something dark as well? And so it was originally going to be a six-parter. And the, the kind of one of the hooks to it was the first five episodes were going to be conventional filmed drama episodes following a kind of Mulder Scully, prototypical Mulder Scully combo, investigating a haunting in in mind to make a TV program about it. And then the final episode was going to be the TV program, Ghostwatch. And it was going to not be shot on film, but shot on video. So Ghostwatch could have looked very, very different, even when it got, basically that was rejected. That idea was rejected because, you know, as we all know, it doesn't matter how talented you are in the industry. There's no guarantee for anything. But it afforded Steve the opportunity to condense everything by stripping out the the dramatic exposition, the the practical, good, honest drama of those five <laughs> episodes, where you can spend a whole episode with somebody finding out one thing it, it, among ten scenes. You know, like she enters the room, she walks around pensively with a cigarette. She doesn't know the truth. She turns to the character. You can literally just give Craig Charles a microphone and have it have it stick it in somebody's face on the street and say, "What happened on Tuesday?" And they can get <laughs> all of that stuff out in in two seconds and that leaves you with a great opportunity to to you know work on the rest but um yeah leslie leslie i cannot express just how vital she was every every cog in Ghostwatch is a vital cog but leslie was so perfectly chosen to just tell it for what it is and try and get in the headspace of somebody who didn't want to work on it she wanted to work on it, but she was imagining that she was some sort of hack director who just sort of said, okay, just put a camera there and just let's just get it over and done with. And then you don't have to worry about people walking into shot. And explaining this to producers was difficult, but um, her instincts were absolutely dead on. And, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it shows. Dude. That was such a revelation, too, because she mentions it in the book where she's talking about how do you construct a story that's supposed to be real? And she's like, well, what are we doing? It's it's on BBC and it's news coverage. So when you're thinking about exposition, you're not trying to hide it. In fact, you're pushing it forward. That's exactly. It. And you just lay it out there. And she's like, it's so counterintuitive to writing a script. And it's just all of these little speed bumps along the way that. I, you know, even now we've, we've done three years of a film fest and I'm still reading literature and I'm still discovering like new things about how to make a, uh, a, a good found footage or in-world camera narrative. And, you know, I read that conversation that you had with her and it's like, God, she was doing this decades ago when there wasn't even like a genre, like nobody had really tackled this mentally. And she was like, invent, she was laying out all the rules right there. Like, are you a found footage fan now? Like, did I this... am. I really am. And there, there have been, a, I'm, I, again, I'm no, compared to you guys, I'm no connoisseur, but there have been a couple of other um, productions in that vein that have, and they've all had that chill factor for me. One was Alien Abduction, uh, the McPherson tape. Oh, yeah. Not the original one, the, the remake, ironically enough. There were cool. a couple of bits in that that really got under my skin there's one called without warning which i think is very close to ghost watch it they've even got the same video wall um the the screens 
stacked on top of each other. That's Sander Van Oka and um, very rudely described as the mum from Malcolm in the Middle. Jane, I think her name is. <laughs> She's, and that's wonderful. That's a, an asteroid uh, impact on Earth. Yeah. And that's great. There's another one called Special Report Journey to Mars that is basically, in my view, and I mean, I say this respectfully, all it, it's like 98% the tacky stuff in Ghostwatch, and then the last 2% is amazing. Really, really unsettling. Um, and then, of course, uh, Blair Witch, and, and I'm sure there are others. Blair Witch, I had the opportunity to see in a cinema, and I, I couldn't make it, so I ended up seeing it on VHS, but I really, really loved it. And I loved the tie-in documentaries that accompanied it as well. Um, Curse of the Blair Witch, Shadow of the Blair Witch, the Burkittsville 7. Um, they, were, they were really, really strong. And I, that kind of world building um, is incredibly difficult because you're having to kind of um, – uh, you've got to be so many steps ahead of the audience at any one time and feed them the wrong information as well. Um, uh, that had certainly happens in Ghostwatch, where um, there, there, there was a, an aspect of the script that wasn't even realised, which was the red eye. That I, I don't know why it didn't appear, but all the way through Ghostwatch, up to a point, you were you were supposed to. It was in the script. You were supposed to see a glowing red eye in the background in certain shots, um, and then at some point, somebody was going to say, "Oh, we figured it out. It's the standby light on the camera." So Chris is holding the camera, and it's got a little red in, uh, indicator light, and it was possibly a because of the impromptu nature of the filming, it was probably a bit more difficult to achieve that. But then, of course, towards the end of the film, we realised that Pipes has lost an eye and it's all bloody. So then you start, oh. <laughs> you start questioning things. So I think, um, I don't know, maybe it's uh, maybe you've got to be kind of trusting to get the most out of something like Ghostwatch. Maybe you've got to go in sort of, um, I don't know, sort of uh, a bit sort of... Um, happy to go along with it, you know? And, and I think a lot of people who resist found footage and, and things like that, they're, they're so cynical right at the beginning. Um, <laughs> they just don't want to give anything a chance. A bit like my dad, um, although he does in, he does enjoy Ghostwatch now sort of retrospectively. And certainly, you know, with my connection to it, he kind of he appreciates it a bit more. He did watch it for one of the anniversaries, I think. Now, Rich, a couple of things. The movies you mentioned, there seems to be like a theme. You like the like television broadcast, kind of like oh, yeah. a uh, a collaboration gone off the rails. Um, I got a ton that I think you would be into that I need to recommend to you later. Okay, but your dad, it's interesting. You've you nailed something I've been trying to articulate for a while. Um, are you familiar with the term ARG? Oh, um, like somewhat. Yes. Alternative somewhat. reality game. Yeah. Yeah. It's mostly like an internet phenomenon. I could send you a couple of like YouTube videos where the channel is essentially a found footage movie. Like it's supposed to be real, but it's like an alternate reality. And, uh, you know, I tackled with that. We've been doing a segment like every other week where I cover a found footage movie just to keep me digesting them. And a couple ARGs came in. And I, I really started to think about it. The community online that really appreciates an ARG, they know it's fake. 
And a lot of the conversation around the Blair Witch Project and around Ghostwatch was always, you know, you get people like your dad and you're like, hey, this is fake. And they, they just want to remind everybody. And when, when you deal with horror movies, you realize it's somebody putting distance in between them and the film. One, either because they, they find it's a waste of time or two, they don't want to be scared. Mm. And I found with found footage, those aren't, that's not the audience. <laughs> Anybody who's like looking for the strings, you got to find the people who they see the string, but they choose to ignore it because they've buckled up for the ride and they're ready. And, and I don't think there's any shame in accepting that this is an alternate reality and three kids sure. didn't die in Burkittsville. But when you tie it up with the news, it gets tricky because the news doesn't want to lose their authority. So BBC doesn't want to give they don't even I mean, God, out here in America, our news landscape, corporate media. What a nightmare. They're at everybody's throats. Everybody's lying all the time. And it's don't question me kind of attitude because they, they need to be the authority. And earlier I asked you. What's, why do people get so mad when they get tricked? And I think it's because they believe, I don't know, what do you think? When you buy in too much and you really believe it, you, you feel fooled at the end and the, the natural aversion is just to get angry? Like, there's, a, the, there's something that Jillian said in the documentary where she said, uh, who played Dr. Pasco, and she said, I think people don't like to feel stupid. And the the thing with Ghostwatch is, I actually don't mind feeling stupid, enjoying it. If if any if that helps, if I if I catch myself and I go, oh, I didn't think of that. Like that's genius. I'm I'm so happy for somebody else to have gotten it, um, just to be on for the ride. But I think there are a lot of people who who when they watch Ghostwatch felt so affronted that they could fall for it without actually realizing what they just participated in, because what they participated in was a piece of drama. It was always described as drama. It was introduced as drama uh, in our kind of um, TV listings magazine uh, of the day, Radio Times. It was you know, stated as drama. At no point did anybody say, this is a live show, believe it. That is up to you as the audience. And... Drama is all about artifice and artifacts and constructing reality. So Ghostwatch, through its shift in presentation, I mean, there are, there are things that you can look out for. Like um, if you had any kind of sense, in 1992, if you had any kind of sense of the, the limitations of technology, there are the wall-mounted cameras that are clearly screwed into the wall and they move on their own volition. They can't do that. So, you, you know, at some point, something should twig in the back of your head that oh, it's somebody with a stick kind of doing that. And the rhythm of the piece as such is it, it's propulsive, you know? So I, I think, um, I think it was Kim Newman, who's a wonderful critic based in the UK. Um, I seem to recall him saying something along the lines of, you know, if it was a real ghost hunt, then nothing would have happened all night. You know, I mean, Parky says in Ghostwatch, we'll be here with updates all through the night in in anticipation of nothing happening <laughs> in anticipation of okay if nothing happens in the first hour and a half then you know maybe in five hours somebody will you know some something will happen um so i i have you seen the bite back the bite back bite back 
No, Biteback? No. Somebody uploaded that to YouTube. Biteback was um, a kind of cross between, I'm trying to think of an American equivalent, kind of like Oprah in some respects, but cross between another program that we have in the UK called Points of View. So it's like a studio space in front of a big audience where the audience are as important as anybody who's on the stage. And there was a lady, a a TV presenter called Sue Lawley, and she interviewed Richard Brooke and Ruth Bamgarn, the producers of Ghostwatch. And the purpose of Bite Back was to allow people, vociferously angry people, in in the case of Ghostwatch, into the studio to basically shout at the producers and tell them that they were wrong for doing this then. And... You could the it it's so it's so bile filled some of it and and some of the things that are said are, are not entirely fair. I think it's it's reasonable to hold people to account, but they they just don't seem to get it. There's like one person who says that they enjoyed it. The rest are crooking fingers and saying, "Well, we we allowed our children to watch it, and we went in another room, and then all of a sudden." one of the kids came in ashen faced and you know we knew that something was wrong to which you then have to ask why did you allow your child to watch we have a thing in the uk called the watershed which is 9 p.m in the evening not so much anything goes but increasingly anything goes so that would be that's the point at which you're supposed to put the kids to bed and then you you have the opportunity to discuss you might start with like a, a, a hard-hitting documentary or something or hard-hitting drama, something with a little bit more bad language, a little bit more sexuality perhaps, just things that you want to keep towards the latter end of the day. And Ghostwatch was 9.25. They made a, an absolute point of, because of the content of Ghostwatch of putting it out later. So technically no kids should have watched it at all. And that was, you know, a, that's – that's when you you think everybody's going to play by the rules, and of course they don't because you know kids stay up late even if they're told not to, and they sort of sneak a, a look at <laughs> TV and stuff. So the the reaction of particularly the people on Bite Back, um, I thought it was again regrettable that there wasn't a more fair minded balance, and you know having to. Um, you can see the producers bracing themselves, and it's not at all pleasant and they're trying to say we we're anticipating this that and the other but then that happened and then that happened but you know at the end of the day we're still proud of it and i think you just have to carry that through because you can't spend you can't spend your entire life apologizing for something that on its own merits works remarkably well and you're never going to please everybody no and good art doesn't, and it shouldn't. Like this show. Oh, no, no. Oh, there's a book I uh, I have that I refer to as the Bible of found footage horror. It's called Found Footage Horror Films, Fear and the Appearance of Reality. I know if you listen to the show, you're tired of me talking about it. Confirmed. It, in that book, they cover Ghostwatch, though, and they make an argument that people who were angry after the presentation um, on BBC, who they truly believed as just you know a gatekeeper of truth it raises an interesting question that maybe you shouldn't just take everything from the news at face value and seeing isn't believing and i mean i would i would like to meet people who get very very angry and i'm like well just learn the lesson that 
you got to be a little bit awake. You got to still have your brain turned on when you're digesting this stuff, because if anything, you could say Ghost Watch is a warning. I mean, we put ghost in the damn title of the program and you believed it hook, line and sinker. I mean, there are objects floating around a room at the end of this broadcast. And I mean, honestly, I think people who are mad, you should walk away and be like, dude, uh, be a little bit more skeptical. Also, I find it impossible to imagine a young child now sneaking in to watch a program like Ghost Watch. I just can't imagine it holding the attention of a little kid in this day and age. Yeah. It's it's a lot of talking heads in a family, and it looks like the kind of uh, activities you do on Halloween that a kid would try and get away from to watch a horror movie or sneak one. Well, there's another interesting aspect to the casting of Ghost Watch, which was Sarah Green was a very well-respected children's TV presenter. Oh. And it just happened to be that... Um, in the casting process, she—I mean, she—she she was trained as an actor, actress, but she was the youngest ever presenter of a very popular um, program called Blue Peter, and that was basically the BBC's main kids program. And it was like they, they would do all sorts of things, you know. What there'd be one. Um, Wait, what's the name of that show? Blue Peter. Blue I Peter. Know, I know Blue Peter. What is and it? It's like an animal mascot, like Blue's Clues, <laughs> or? I can't recall the um, the etymology of it. I think it refers to a, a <laughs> ship. I think it refers. Uh, uh, there's like a logo which is a blue ship, and uh, you used to get a badge if you if you did good things in the community. Oh, you, okay. You would get your own badge, and that badge would then allow you to get into theme parks that are reduced cost. So it was it was incredibly sought after to get your own blue piece badge. But Sarah was, I think, the youngest ever presenter on that. A blue and- Peter badge. I'm sorry, you just gave me a revelation. Because we, I watch RuPaul's Drag Race quite regularly. And in the UK version, she awards people the Ru-Peter badge. Ah, there you go. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Why do they get, <laughs> like in, in America, you get five grand. On that show, you get a badge. And I was like, why is she jipping them? The Blue Peter badge. Yeah, it went through a lot of different iterations. It was originally an enamel badge. But then I think somebody probably got wise to it and started manufacturing the badges. So then it was like a credit card. I think. Richie, got to look it up. Look up a Rue Peter be badge. An app now or something. The Blue Peter app. I don't know. Yeah, you got to look it up because she gives out enamel badges too. It, it clicked together. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so that makes total sense to me. I mean, you know, I don't know if Blue's Clues made it over to uh, the UK, but what Steve the original host of that show He's back. went on Twitter and just did a little video and it was like bringing people to their knees. They're crying. And then Colbert ruined it. And oh, tch, Colbert ruins everything now. Not a comedian anymore. Anyway, like, and people are just living in nostalgia. So when you say that, I could imagine you see somebody like that in this program. And as a child, you're like, well, I don't care that it's just boring talking. I'm going to stick with it. And I mean, God, I mean, you were pretty perceptive. If you're paying attention to that subplot, that pipe story is really dark. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And also, again, it's completely, um, it's not entirely explained. So there's a lot left up to your imagination. There's a lot, like, people talk about Ghostwatch being gory on occasion there have been instances where people have emailed into the blog and, and said what where's the deleted scene of this that and the other and it's like no 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 no, that's it that's literally it. <laughs> There's, there are two versions on dvd there was one that was released by the british film institute which was absolutely 
tremendous. It was just what a fan wanted. Um, ten years later, it was the tenth anniversary, and the making of that is quite interesting. I think it was quite a last-minute thing, really. They had a kind of legendary television line that they wanted to put out, and one of the things that they discovered was Ghostwatch, and then they just sort of corral people in. Do you want to do a commentary? Do you want to do this? You know. Um, and then the second release was a few years later by a company called 101 Films, and for one reason or another, they had the little bumper at the start of the program that was that was left in um so a screen one drama would have a sort of animation of a, a big old crt tv set sort of moving around <laughs> and a boulder would explode through the glass and tumble and crack with the logo or bbc screen one so that that remained um yeah in that one well rich man i'm i'm glad I was able to uh, track you down. I really, I want to find your documentary. I got to watch it. Like, so get it out there. Throw it on Tubi. <laughs> Somebody did. Somebody, I had to take it off. Oh, good. Um, Please do. <laughs> um, yeah. The, 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 the short version of why it hasn't come back is twofold. Number one, I put my life savings into it. So I want to oh, see Jesus. something back. Yeah. yeah. At all possible. Um, and number two, it just has to be the best that it, it can be. And it just it just happens to be the way that it, you have to wait for an anniversary and, and what have you. And we've 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 passed a couple of anniversaries, but I think the 30th is is the one to aim for now. And and again, there's such a, a wellspring of enthusiasm and the generosity of the, the fan base, critics, academics, people who want to throw their um, opinions into the, the pile and. And and yourselves, you know, people who do these wonderful podcasts and, and just want to talk about it. Um, it's it just feels like the right time to do it. So yeah, next year um, I will do my utmost. And I'm so sorry for the wait. It's like every couple of months I'm having to explain what's going on, but it's just dude, no apologies. Line up. That we we wouldn't even have the documentary without you. So hey, thank you. You're doing God's work. Um, if you ever want to come out to San Francisco and join the festival, man. We'd love to have you. Open invitation. We got to we got to stay in contact with you. Um, building these communities is really important, and it's the same reason uh, a bunch of non-critics over here kind of forced our way into a position of expertise. Um, Richard, man, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, no better way to close off uh, October than talking Ghost Watch with you. Happy Rich, Halloween! Uh, hell yeah, love you, man. We'll we'll be in contact. Thanks, Rich.